Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in the last third of every Parsha. So we're in the last third of Parshat Shoftim as well. Uh, earlier we got the commandment Shoftim. What does Shoftim mean? Judges. Judges. So we got the commandment regarding the judiciary. Uh, and then uh, some discussion of that. We get Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. Justice. Justice shall you run after, shall you pursue. Um, those are the easier parts to teach <laughs> than uh, what we come to now. What we come to now are the laws about war. Uh, we come to... Deuteronomy's understanding of what is allowed and what isn't in war. It's, it's always, to me, a bit of an oxymoron to talk about the ethics of war. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, are we going to go kill other people who are on the other side? And let's talk about the ethics you know, around that. So it feels like an oxymoron, but when you particularly in the ancient world and in many parts of this world, if you live in a state of constant war or the possibility of war, it's not that you, you don't get to pick. You have to engage with it. And, you know, people in this room have remembered when our country's been, right, um, in that position, uh, meaning, you know, we had to participate or it was going to go worse in the world uh, if we didn't engage uh, in the war. I'm someone who doesn't have so many of those memories, right? I have memories of Vietnam and um, Iraq, right? <laughs> Afghanistan. Those are, you know, my memories. Uh, so, um, so knowing that it's inevitable, knowing that there's going to be armed conflict, a, a society, if it is truly attempting to be a just, self-reflective Society has to think about what is allowed and what isn't allowed. What, if you're in armed conflict, what is considered fair and what is considered not unfair and something that we don't want to uh, commit. So I was doing some research last night and um, came across the IDF, right, Ethics of War document. And we all know that the IDF takes very seriously wrestling with the questions of the inevitable suffering, the inevitable, in some ways, atrocity, right, that happens with war, and takes very seriously ethical conduct by its soldiers. Um, I think it's one of the places that, that Israel is most warped in terms of its uh, representation in the world, right? That what we see on TV and what the coverage we see is always of a tank and, you know, a child with a rock. You know, it just, I'm not saying it's, there's not horrible things that happen. I'm not saying it's always done well or right. But, but I think what people miss is the great extent to which Israeli soldiers agonize and the IDF itself agonizes with the morality of war and the ethics of war. Um, we live in a time where we like to think that this is old material because we're, we're done with that. And here in the United States, we have a certain luxury that we don't deal with this. But if you are in Congo, that is not 
true, right? Child soldiers are being drafted by the thousands and forced to commit atrocities uh, because it it solidifies their bond to right the the military forever because it's so hard to live with what they've done. So if they you take them young, make them commit atrocities, you have them forever because they it's the one place that they can be who they are, living with what they've done. Um, it's just horrifying. So. So we're going to look for a little bit at some of this material, and then I read Rabbi uh, Bradley Shavit Artson's comments on this and thought, that's where we're going. So look at, please, verse 1 of chapter 20. And, Bert, you want to read? When you take the field against your enemies and see horses and chariots, forces larger than yours, have no fear of them. For the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt is with you. Before you join battle... The priest shall come forward and address the troops. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are about to join battle with your enemy. Let not your courage falter. Do not be in fear or in panic or in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who marches with you to do battle for you against your enemy to bring you victory. The priest has a role here in heartening the people. To come and speak to the people, Shema Israel, your getting ready to engage uh, militarily. And so the, the priest's job is to, to do what's the responsible thing for your soldiers, which is to say, don't be afraid, right? This, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to, you're going to be okay. You're going to be victorious. And how does the priest promise that? Thank you so much. Thank you. We need a bunch of those. They're going around. Thank you, Genevieve. The priest does that by saying, it is Adonai Luechem Aulechimachem Lehilachem. It is God, God's self, who goes before you, who marches out against the enemy to bring you victory. In the ancient world, this was truly how ancient Israel understood war to happen, is that God did the fighting on behalf of Israel. So often the ark would be carried into battle along with other sancta from the, from the um, temple. And so the priest gives them this charge, and then it was understood that God was going to do the fighting. God was understood to be in the camp. And so we get laws in other places about having to keep the camp pure, the military camp pure, because God's presence was understood to be there. Right, so there's all kinds of laws about digging latrines and where you can dig latrines because otherwise it's not suitable for God's presence to rest in the camp. Right, so there's um, a sense that it is God who fights for Israel. I wonder, you know, myself, if you have a divinity fighting, you know, does it somehow lessen, you know, the sense of one's own responsibility? for what one has to do in war that one would hate to have to do. I mean, we see so many soldiers committing suicide, right, as they come back because of PTSD, right? The things that they see, the things that they cannot unsee, the things that they had to do that nobody who has any kind of, you know, moral compass at all would ever want to do on purpose or 
as, you know, what we call collateral damage, right, air quotes, because uh, crazy, um, that concept even. But I, and so I wonder if there's a way that if the divinity's fighting, does it spare people some of that PTSD? Does it spare them that sense of, of um, responsibility for having done horrible things in battle? I don't know, but it, it occurred to me. There's another piece to this that I find disturbing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I grew up not in the other wars <laughs> in Vietnam, and Bob Dylan had this song with God on our side. And there is the sense that what does it mean when people think God is on their side in a war? We even see that today among terrorists, that there, there's a flip side. It's, it's one thing to get courage. It's another thing to believe that all right and all goodness is with whatever your side is. Mm-hmm. And that can be quite dangerous. Right. And yet, how do you go to war if you don't believe that? <laughs> you know, like, you know, I think about World War II or, you know, like, <clears throat> you know, like you go to war in a war like that thinking we are, God is on our side. Right? We're, like, we're fighting for, you I know, mean, the good, like, the right, and the true. And Another negative is that so many people who survive war or live through a war or a camp come out saying, there's no God. Mm-hmm. How can I believe in a God? Right. Mm-hmm. When, when, with what they see, mm-hmm. right? It's the, if, the, if there were a loving presence called God, then a lot of this right. truly could not happen or wouldn't happen. Or If you forgive the anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism, you know, there's poor God, excuse me for saying that, <laughs> up wherever or down or around or wherever <laughs> God is, and here's two sides, both of whom saying God's on their side. Right, like the football <laughs> team, right? right, you know? right. Both of them are praying to win, and you know, mm-hmm. what is George? God, God scratches her head. In World War II, they say many people found God in the foxholes. Right. So, yeah, they say there are, yeah, there are no atheists right. in, in the foxholes. In the foxholes. I think that was, was that from World War II or World War I? I think that was World War One. Three on a match. I was thinking, when I was a kid. <laughs> I was thinking about Israel, two points. First of all, um, if God is fighting the war for the Jewish people, it's kind of ironic that the people who supposedly believe in God most strongly, the most Orthodox, don't believe <laughs> But then the other point about Israel is that... Um, well, and I want to be clear, that was ancient Israel. Okay. Ancient Israel believed that. <laughs> Um, but the other more current point is even with the ethical rules that the IDF has developed, there are plenty of soldiers that absolutely cannot, they refuse, they refuse next, they do not go into the West Bank because they just feel it's unethical to do what they mm-hmm. have to do. So absolutely. Those guidelines, you know, they're not enough. Right. And, and that's, that is something that has been eating at the heart and soul of Israel is how to handle being, you know, the the power and having the power and the authority over another people. And it is Israel. It's eating at the heart and soul of American Jews. Too. Yes. How do we support them? Yes. And mm-hmm. and what? But what do you do until there's a solution? Mm-hmm. Aren't there different? Traditionally, aren't there different kinds? classifications of war in Jewish tradition? Yes, so that's part of the discussion of ethics of war is, is it a defensive war mm-hmm. or an offensive war? Mm-hmm. And the rules are different for those. Laura? Um, I find myself wondering about the 
discussion of do we, in currently, when you have an enemy that doesn't engage in dealing with rules of war, does that you know, justify playing as dirty as they do, which one candidate says? And a lot of people would agree. So is there anything in the text or the history where these ancient Israelites had enemies who didn't follow rules of ethics and they were still required to or... I don't think it's dis- it's not discussed biblically. There's like a unique relationship to Amalek, right? And destroy Amalek, right? Down to the last, you know, person. Because when you were traveling in the desert, Amalek attacked you from the rear, meaning picked off the aged and the young, the children. So that, ma- well, that made it an atrocity. In the, in the ancient world, that was considered an atrocity, right? You don't you don't attack the old, the vulnerable, the sick, the children. So, and so it seems Tara is saying, if that's done, you have a special obligation to go after them. Um, so there's that there, but uh, in general, it's really about Israelite ethics, and it's situational ethics. If you know this happens, then you're allowed to do this. If that happens, then you can't do that. You have to do this. It's really important to try to think, you know, having the rules of you know, what's okay for us to define who you are as a people, that's important. And yet that, these examples also say if, people, if, if your enemy is not playing fair, smash them. <laughs> but these well, are... they're not playing by the rules. They come up from behind. Nuka. I think with 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 Amalek, that is that is that is a truth. Right. Was it unique for Jews at that for the Israelites to have rules at all, moral rules for war? Did other cultures have? I don't know specifically if there's other uh, ethical codes, because I just don't know the subject well enough. I know that in Ugaritic, we have similar dispensations as we have here for certain people who didn't have to serve, like being exempt. So that leads me to believe there were, you know, similar codes in in other... One I'm of not the what is Aleppo? <laughs> <laughs> Ugaritic. Uh, so that it's one of the parent traditions of of early Israel. The Ugarites. So um, no, Ugarit is the city. Okay. Oh, okay. One of the big cities, um, like Sumer, mm-hmm. in the ancient world. So Sumerian, um, Ugaritic, Akkadian. Okay. Th- those are the parent languages and parent cultures of early Israel. Um, we tend to ha- we tend to buy our mythic history as reality and our mythic history says how did Israel get founded? How did the culture of the flourishing of Israel happen? We left Egypt and conquered the land of the Canaanite land and took over. Right? That didn't happen. The archaeological record is very very clear. The cultural archaeology is very clear that early Israel emerged from within Canaan. So they're, they're, not to say there wasn't a foreign 
influence. There's lots of theories about what that foreign influence was, you know, that started to shift things and shift ideas, but it emerged within Canaan. So Hebrew emerges out of Sumerian, Akkadian, Ugaritic. It is a, it is a later language than Canaanite, one of the Canaanite uh, languages, but it is related to them. So often when we don't know what a word means in the Torah, we go and look up we people who know these things go and look up Akkadian, Ugaritic, Sumerian. Is there a similar concept? Is there a similar construct? And often there is. My my biblical year teacher of blessed memory, Dr. Tikva Frey-Markensky, read and translated those languages. And so sitting in class, she would say to us, this is, and she would then write on the board, the cognate in Akkadian from which this word in Hebrew comes. Um, and so, so it's the parent, it's one of the parent traditions. And so what we do is we look at them, like I just said to Bert, that if you find it in Ugaritic and in Acadia and, you know, in Sumerian, it's, it means it's regional. Yes. It gives you a location. It's not, it's not unique to Israel. It didn't, it didn't arise with Israel. Thank you. And, um, and it's very helpful, you know, to, cause then you, then you can figure out what is the Israelite reconstruction. So when we look at, when we look at the flood narratives of the ancient Near East, it helps us understand our flood narrative, right? Because it's because mm-hmm. it, it's not oh we have this story about a flood. It's it's there's a, <laughs> um, it's a theme in the region. Everybody has a flood story. Everybody has the primordial flood story. The question then becomes, or or the insight that we can gain from that knowledge is so. What's different about the Israelite flood story? That tells us what you, is unique to arising Israel, mm-hmm. right? The, the culture that Israel and the thought and philosophy and whatever and the that Israel. Is really key to that. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, sure. Sure. All right. So let's go on to five. Then the officials shall address the troops as follows: Is there anyone who has built a new house but has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his home, lest he die in battle, and another dedicated. Is there anyone who's planted a vineyard, but has never harvested it? Let him go back to his home, lest he die in battle, and another harvest it. Is there anyone who has paid the bride price for a wife, but who has not yet married her? Let him go back to his home, lest he die in battle, and another marry her. The official shall go on addressing the troops and say, Is there anyone afraid and disheartened? Let him go back to his house, lest the courage of his comrades flag like his. When the officials have finished addressing the troops, army commanders shall assume command of the troops. All right. So an interesting set of deferments. In other places, these things that are here, things that are, are allow someone to defer service, are seen and uh, explained as those things that make life worthwhile, right? So then it makes sense. If that's what makes life worthwhile, you wouldn't ask someone not to experience those things. And if you're asking someone to go to war, you're asking them to potentially, then you're asking them to end their lives right now, right? They they might not, but you're asking them to, 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 to put themselves into that absolute real possibility. Well, if you're going to do that, it seems that, you know, according to Torah, there are some things you shouldn't ask somebody not to experience in this world, even if you're going to war. Well, 
were there two important, like the harvesting of the thing? Maybe, maybe it's a good. Because it says, lest someone else harvest it. That that's just too devastating to ask somebody that you've paid the bride price, you've worked, you know, you've achieved a match, and you know, you've paid the price so that she now is her sexuality now belongs to you, and somebody else is gonna be with her, right? That that there are some things that's just too devastating to ask a soldier to give up uh, in going to war, George. Well, the question one, two questions. One is this says if you're a coward, you don't have to go. And it's also in the list of exemptions which we have the conscientious objector because of religious grounds. Where do you see that? No, I say it was not listed. No, it is not listed. Yes. Because this is a theocracy. God is king. And if God says go to war, it is treason to to not go, right? And so you can't say, I, I object on religious grounds when it's God who's commanding you, like, sorry. This is the religious. We treat things other than cowards substantially differently than, say, go home and Because the cowards could infect the others. Right, so. But what is the Hebrew? There's a difference between being afraid and being a coward, I think. Um. Hayare, so who is afraid? Virach Halevav, right? And is soft of heart, soft hearted. It's different from disheartened. It's, it's, it's so, um, my notes say soft hearted, meaning cowardly, as in verse 3 courage falter. Some Tanaitic and medieval commentators took this idiom to mean tender-hearted in the sense of compassionate and unable to inflict harm on others. So in any case, we don't know how to translate this. Either it's a coward or it's somebody who right, is afraid or it's somebody who's tender-hearted. It seems that Torah is exempting people from serving who can't bring themselves to serve. But I mean, there's a reason for that. It, not because of it's a nice feeling. Correct. It's to infect correct. The other yeah. fighters. Absolutely. Which makes a lot of sense. Which war. is very smart, right? Correct. It absolutely seems to have to do with everybody else, not just that person. But we found something very similar. We eliminated the draft. Uh, only we've eliminated the draft. So, but if there were a if there were a draft, would we have that exemption? It's an interesting. Historically, in the United States, was not an exemption. We treated them differently. We put them in jail. Muhammad Ali had to go to So it seems we, in the past, we have not had that category and had it be okay. You weren't. You weren't exempted, you were detained, right? Um, 
But it's an interesting question. If we, if we had to, God forbid, institute a draft, what you know, what would what would it look like? I need to. I think we need the draft because only with draft do the middle and upper class kids get drafted, and then their parents move and stop war. So as long as we have a volunteer so army. Then, no, they're all then, the park guys, and nobody comes and stands up for them because my kids aren't involved. Nobody from their school is. So that's I believe in the draft. I think it's an excellent point about who's who's at risk. Yes. Right. What? So because we're still fighting wars, the United States is certainly fighting wars today. But the you know what I hear you lifting up is, and who's at risk in those wars? Poor kids, you know, who don't have another option for necessarily education or other paths to uh, a future. More, more than anything, it would ultimately mean less war. And because, be, because it like implicates everybody, the draft. Our kids are not going to be shoved into that mess. It's, um, these are the really difficult issues, right? As long as we live in a world with war and armed conflict... These questions are not going to go away. Look how Israel deals with it. I mean, everybody is involved. Except the ultra-Orthodox, um, right, who are exempt on religious, religious grounds. <coughs> Which I had a question about, because here it stated that you're, you're not exempt on religious grounds, so where are they pulling that from? You think politics. Halacha stopped here, right? The rabbis interpret all of this. But there are some Orthodox who do serve. I don't know yeah. what branch it is. It is yeah. a slightly different capacity. So some do civil service mm-hmm. as an alternative, and some serve, some modern Orthodox, lots of modern Orthodox serve in the IDF. There, all, all we were lifting up is that there's, ironically, a religious exemption. Right? There's clearly not here. There, but now there is in Israel a religious exemption um, from service. I was in my early 20s during the Vietnam War, and there is not anybody I knew who didn't have an exemption. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> right. There is not anybody. Who so I hear you saying even with a draft, yes. there's there's exemptions, right? And who can get one? And my father of blessed memory managed to screw it up and <laughs> he would have been exempt as an only son and because he had two sisters and uh, he managed to mess up the paperwork. His parents almost <laughs> disowned him uh, so he served in Korea because he messed up the form. You get exemptions for a heel problem. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, let, let's go on. That magic had cured. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, got a, I, I have a exemption There you go. There you go. All right, let's look at verse 10. When you approach a town to attack it. So an offensive war. You shall offer it terms of peace. If it responds peaceably and lets you in, all the people present there shall serve you at forced labor. If it does not surrender to you, but would join battle with you, you shall lay siege to it. And when the Lord your God delivers it unto your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. You may, however, take as your booty the women, the children, the livestock, and everything in the town, 
all its spoil and enjoy the use of the spoil of your enemy, which the Lord your God gives you. All right. Wonderful. It gets worse. We're not going there. We're not going. I can't. I'm too tired. It's been a long. It's been a very long week. Um, I can't. Um, right. It's that was the good part. and that's right. That was the good part. Um, so, in offensive war, uh, you have to. The first thing you have to do is offer peace. terms of peace. Right. So, go to your sheets. This is from. Uh, the Bedside Torah, Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson, encamped on the borders of the Holy Land, preparing to conquer and inhabit Eretz Israel, the Jewish tribes hear a description of the laws of warfare for the first time. While we may take legal guidelines for combat for granted, the question of whether there should even be laws of war has been questioned in every age. From its inception, Judaism has affirmed that war being a human activity is properly a subject for moral consideration and for legal limitation. An extensive just war tradition emerges out of the earliest layers of Jewish law from the Torah, the Midrashim, and the Mishnah. Jewish scholars have extended that tradition into our own age, addressing issues of non-combatant immunity, siege warfare, and preemptive strikes from the perspective of the eternal values and structures of halacha, of Jewish law. One of the first commandments about waging just war is found in Parshat Shoftim, in describing the procedures appropriate for the conquest of Eretz Yisrael, God mandates that when you approach a town to attack it, you shall offer it terms of peace. What a paradox. In responding to the most sacred war of Jewish tradition, the only war commanded explicitly by God, the one war which would allow Israel to live and thrive in its own land, even in that war, the Jews are commanded to seek peace first. So remember, this is an offensive war that Deuteronomy is talking about because this is the, it's talking about the conquest, right? That Israel couldn't exist as a people hanging out in the desert, right? They, they, they are told they're to push in. God commands this. This is how we take the promised land, mythically speaking, right? So this is the justest of wars imaginable is what Rabbi Artson is saying, right? That, this is the war to take the land and become a people and are safe in our own land. So even in that case, even when you're making that just war, the, the conquest, you must offer terms of peace. Such is the greatness of peace. In English, the primary meaning of the word peace is an absence of hostilities. Peace itself has no positive or inherent content. It is merely the lack of negative condition. In Hebrew, however, the connotation of shalom is one of fullness, completion, and wholeness. Peace is not simply a lack of violence. Peace is the ultimate condition of fulfillment, the purpose of creation and human creativity. So when we look at, right, we're all familiar with, right? We see this everywhere, even if you don't read Hebrew. Right? Right? We're all familiar with that, so, or many of us are. It's based on this Hebrew root, right? So the root is shin lamet mem. And shin lamet mem means what? Complete. Whole. Yes. Complete. So you, you cannot understand the word shalom without understanding shalem, 
wholeness, completion. So talk to me about what do you see as this meaning then? And you can't use the word peace. And you can't use the word whole or complete because it's not that word either. It's based in that word. Shalem, whole, complete. So, so then what, if that's the root, what does shalom mean? Expresses some kind of unity. Togetherness, unity, togetherness, which is usually in Hebrew, yachad, togetherness. Justice. Justice is based on sadi, dalit kuf, tzedek, tzedakah. Tzedek, tzedek, tzir dof, justice will you pursue. So that's a different shoresh. Yachad, together, is... There's a better shoresh for that. Rita? For, for which? For what, what does this mean? You want a word. So, <laughs> or five words. <laughs> what about achievement? Achievement? Yes, that you have to work for it. It would be based on malacha, right? On work, efforting. One one possible analogy, but this is more on the individual level, is the idea of self-actualization in a way, like as a people. Self-actualization from whole and complete. Being with God? One can be with God and be in fear. And Harmony. What does harmony mean? Like purity. All the waves are going. Everything's gelling the way they should. Lots of different things. Doing, playing well, sounding well together. Yes, all the kids playing well together. Okay. I think of the Kabbalah idea of the the sparks and the shattered uh, the shattered vessels, and then bringing them back together again. I think of perfection. A sense of renewal. So, okay. Perfection. Wholeness. Together. You can't use whole or complete. Right? So do you, I'm doing this on purpose, not just to torture you. Right? I'm making you really think about it because we, we blithely say peace. And it's like, and, and maybe it's because I'm born in 65, but that got like, denigrated right at some point about you know peace is like you're naive you're right you know you're like it just is like go on come on you know get real it's so we throw that around and I know a lot of us mean it when we say we want to work for peace I, I get that but I want us I wanted us to sit for a minute and really struggle not just go oh that's interesting but really struggle with what does this mean because if you stop thinking in English and you stop thinking in French and Italian and Spanish. You, if you think in ancient Hebrew, it's a different concept. Peace. You may be the only one here who can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, find, I find it interesting that that word and variations of it is the equivalent like of hello in, in Hebrew, in Arabic, because you're in Indonesia, in Indonesia, they say "Assalamu alaikum." Because you're greeting people as people right. come to you. What do you wish Peace most for them? Acceptance. Peace. Peace. And and the reason I'm not letting you use whole or complete is because there's a word for that. Shlemut is wholeness. That's not this. Shlemut 
is wholeness. There is a word for that. It's not this word. So from whole to content. So, you know, one that comes a little close for me maybe is serenity. You know, the, the, this is the state that comes from experiencing wholeness or completion. This is the state that one experiences when there is wholeness. How about peacefulness? Are we allowed to say that? <laughs> Are we allowed to say that? Peacefulness. Um, so the... And so if we think of it that way, that this, what we wish when we wish someone peace is that they experience being in the state that one is in when one feels whole and complete. And that is what we wish for the world as well. In the case here, I mean, in, in, in offering terms of peace has nothing to do. It has everything to do with this. So is there another term for what they're saying? Can't be peace, can't be shalom. Yeah. You must offer them shalom. So what I'm saying is, if you go into the language, you're offering something more. I mean, yes, technically, they're offering terms of peace, yes. And you sit down and you hammer it out, right? But but the, the I believe the underlying reason for that is because Torah truly appreciates that this is the state of what we wish for, what we long for, what we're working for. Rabbi Arthur says, that's the point of humanity. It's the point of all human creativity, is trying to get here. Laura? Yes, to all of that. Uh-oh. But these people are going to be signed into forced labor as part of the piece. I don't think we are necessarily offering them all that you just described. We want that. So we are we are judging that as not being shalem. Right. They did not judge it that way. Aha. Right. So that again, and this how is. Can you, how can, so then shalem is not all the serenity business sh- if you're at forced labor. But if you accept a world in which there is forced labor and you have offered terms of peace, and so you're not going to kill them. Right, that, 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 but you're going to take over their town, and and in a world where forced labor exists as a reality, you could use this term. You can't. You you can if you're in ancient Israel. No, you you can't twig fulfillment, serenity with forced labor and slavery. I don't know how. Um, I think the only reason we can say that they tolerated that is because they could do that in their heads. Tolerating. It's not the same as fulfillment or surrender. Okay, forget tolerate. They perpetrated it over and over and over. They they accepted and participated in a system that that was their cultural reality. So the slave is fulfilled. So according to Torah law, if a slave is treated well, he's fulfilled. That's one of the spoils of war. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And just an inadequate word. I think it's wonderful to say to some, you know, oh, that's what we're trying to get, this higher level residence 
vibration of serenity and harmony, and we won't kill you. <laughs> is another part of the definition. So we're not there yet, right? So like, here's what's going to happen today because we're not here yet, hundred percent. So, and we can be clear that that there's that there's different levels and ways in which we use this for sure. But what I'm pushing towards is what do we mean when we say peace? You know, what, what, do, what do we mean Jewishly Like when, when we're talking about that? Let's go back to Rabbi Artson. Is there a Hebrew word for truth? For what? Truth. Yes. Which is substantially different. It's not this. Well, I know it's not that. <laughs> but that's the, the opposite. Of what? That's not you. Right, so it's an interesting. This is how it's not negativity. It's that we exist without fighting. But a truce would be without the forced labor part. I would think. I would think. Let's just stop. Depends who's fighting and when and under what laws of what's normative. Yeah. Right. In the ancient world, what's normative is different. Like Judith was saying, right? That. Um, all right. One more, and then we're gonna go on. I'm, I'm also having a huge problem. You don't have to reconcile anything from Deuteronomy with our ethics and values and understanding of the world today. Nothing. We don't reconcile this. We don't believe this is okay. We don't believe this is right. We would certainly never, never support forced labor. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, no, I'm serious. Like, what if, what if we had to? I, I'm not, I wouldn't ever want to live in that world, but what if we had to? I don't know. But the point being, all I was trying to do is, is, is engage Laura stepping out of our own ethnocentricity to look at their reality. I am not suggesting we want that reality or would ever, ever agree with that being a reality we participated in. This was thousands of years ago. In that world, in that time, we just need to treat the text fairly and treat this isn't... When people go, how can that be ethical? Because in a world that took slavery for granted... You can be an ethical slave owner or an unethical slave owner, well, right? So I, I'm just saying we, we don't have to agree with slavery. God forbid. That's all I was saying to, to Laura is to step out of our own cultural references. We do not have to do that in terms of picking which pieces of Torah speak to us and that we want to perpetuate and that we want to teach and that we want to keep. But we have to confront them. Right? I was reading an article that said something about engaging all texts. And it's like, if we don't engage some of these texts, the author was saying, they'll come back another way to bite us. Like, if we don't, if we don't confront our own texts that are in violation of our own ethics and morals, that is a very risky thing, too. Right? To not own our own junk. And if one takes the Torah literally, word for word, written by God and some do. How can they deal with right. that? Right. And and these are these are some of the verses I point to. Mm -hmm. When I'm like, really? Really? 
God wrote every word and means every word. Really? Okay, let's turn to Deuteronomy. Open your book, <laughs> right? And let's go to, because like Bird said, this was the good part. <laughs> I, I just don't have the kayak this week to go to the other part. Um, it's like, if, what if they don't accept your terms? And I said, so now those are the, really, those are the verses I point to when I'm dealing with a fundamentalist. It's like, so you defend that to me. Children. Killing children. Really? Really? Okay. All right. And what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? There. All right. Did somebody have a hand up that I ignored? All right. So go to, the, we're on page 350. Oh, you don't have a page number on your book. Those same rabbis took a relatively enigmatic biblical figure, Aaron, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, and transformed him into a symbol of peace. As the great sage Hillel taught, strive to become a disciple of Aaron the Kohen who loves peace and pursues peace. Tales were told of how Aaron would reconcile neighbors, friends, and even spouses. Such was his passion in pursuing peace. The temple in Jerusalem was similarly transformed into a symbol of peace. Its altar restored peace between humanity and our parent in heaven. Consequently, the use of any metal implement on its altar was prohibited. Why? Because the altar was made to prolong life and iron is used to shorten it. The same transformation elevated the Torah itself into a symbol of peace. All her ways are pleasant and all her paths are peace. We sing this every time we are at the ark. Right? So this is um, this is something we sing every time still we open the ark. Shabbat too became the great day of peace throughout Jewish history and according to Kabbalistic legend throughout the cosmos as well. The central Jewish institutions, the Torah, Shabbat, the temple, and the central religious figure, the Kohen Gadol, were transformed into living symbols of peace to demonstrate the centrality of that value at the core of Jewish teaching. The rabbis went on to reinforce its centrality through the composition of Jewish prayer. Uh, Linda, would you help? Linda's, will you all pass out prayer books? Sure. Yep. The rabbis are responsible for creating the liturgy that we have. They write the liturgy. They put together the liturgy. They, right? The, the prayer book is their creation. It is their way of continuing. And we can have one for every two people. Um, it is their way of um, continuing after the destruction of the temple to have a relationship with the divine. So they structure the service on when there would have been sacrifices in the temple. And people can share. We're going to go to page 323. 323. 323. The conclusion of the Amidah. This is the central collection of blessings in every service, morning and nighttime. The Amidah, the standing prayer. It's also called the Tfilah, the prayer. Because for the rabbis, this is the apex of the service. I know you're shocked it's not the sermon. But the, the apex of the, of the service is the tefillah, this collection of blessings. What do we use to close this set of blessings, to close that time of when each of us is intimately standing before God? 
Ah, so let's look at those words. So what does it say? Oseh Shalom Bim Ramav. May the one who makes peace Bim Ramav in the high places, who Ya'aseh Shalom Aleinu, may, and of course it's this, it's masculine, may he make Oseh Shalom Aleinu, make peace on us. Ve'al kol Yisrael and on all of Israel. And how do Reconstructionists, we added something to that. What do we say? And on all inhabitants of the world. That is how we close that time of most intimate standing with the divine. The last thing we ask the divine before we leave the divine presence is may... You, God, who makes peace in the high places, give us, Aleinu, put it on us, put peace on us and on all Israel and Reconstructionists say on all the world. This is what Rabbi Artson is talking about, that this is how we close our time. Turn to page 319. And what do you see there? You see a big shalom, Rita says. Graphically, this is done by uh, Betsy Teutsch, uh, wife of Dr. Rabbi David Teutsch, um, her beautiful calligraphy throughout the prayer book. Uh, and you see a big shalom. What is this What is this here, this collection of words? Priestly blessing. The priestly benediction. Habrachah mishuleshet, the threefold blessing used by the high priest to bless the people of Israel, used by the priests to bless the people. This is one of the oldest pieces of liturgy we have. This is one of the oldest things we have that was spoken in ancient Israel as part of liturgy. And what does it say? May God bless you and shomer you, right? Guard you, protect you. Watch over you. Ya'er Adonai panav elecha. May the light of God, right? May God light up God's face. To shine is what we usually say in English. The Hebrew is, may God light up God's face towards you. And chain is grace. And graceify you. Right? I don't like to be gracious to you. <laughs> right? May God graceify you. Exactly. Yisa Adonai Panav Elecha. May God set God's countenance towards you. Vayasem Lecha Shalom. And bring you, give you, set upon you peace. That was the position of the hands that the priests used to sentence and because Leonard Nimoy was Jewish and he lived long and prosper um, but some people say it's a shin it's a I erased it right it's a shin for Shalom um, for Shaddai like one of the names of God um, and so the, so the entire blessing of the people the, the punchline is may God grant you peace because it was this for our 
rabbis, our sages, is the the thing. This is it. This is the ultimate, is experiencing the state which comes from being whole and complete. In this case, it is not the absence of war, Laura Diamond. <laughs> In this case, I mean, it is that too. I, definitely, definitely first, that. Um, but it's, it's central, right? It, and for the rabbis who create, who create this service, this is how they close the important stuff. And it's based even in our biblical ritual and, um, and liturgy. 450. Page 450. Hey, hey. My family goes, nice skip. Like when I'm on the Bema, they go, nice skip. Really? When I announce a page number, they're like, nice skip. That's so supportive. <laughs> um, 450, what do we see? We see Mourner's Kaddish. Yeah? The time we remember our dead, the time we're most longing for people who aren't here, most missing people who aren't any longer with us, how do we close that time? Ose shalom bimramav, may the one who makes peace in the high places make peace for us and all Israel, and all the world. That's crazy. Right, right on some level. We're hurting. We're missing somebody, right? Shouldn't we be saying, I don't know. Well, the word we left out up there also includes acceptance. It's that, well, certainly, certainly, certainly peace, wholeness, tranquility, you know, like uh, completion does not come without acceptance. So we could have a whole nother discussion for hours about how would what are the things that would need to happen for us to get to shalom. I mean I mean just each of us, right? Within, forget the world. That one it's been a long week. I can't even go there. Um, but the what would what has to happen within each one of us to reach shalom and 100% acceptance is there. And I think that's part of what the rabbis are getting at. And I think what they ask is when we're most feeling broken, empty. what we pr- empty, what we pray for is is wholeness. Because we are broken when somebody's gone. Or as my mother used to say, that's life. <laughs> and, and accepting those parts of it that are supremely difficult as part of the wholeness of what it means to be human is I think part of what the rabbis are getting at by closing Kaddish with Oseh Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.